Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the show for the second time, Father Jim Martin. How are you, sir? I'm great. It's great to be back. I had such a good time the first time. I was uh, hoping you'd ask me back, so thanks. Well, hey, you have an open invitation to come on the podcast anytime you want. Thank you. You keep putting books out, then we'll have, uh, keep having excuses for you to be on. Well, good. That's a deal. Well, you know, I was scared because today I know is the release date for the uh, 10-year anniversary of the, the book My Life with the Saints, and I was worried that my nemesis, Stephen Colbert, was going to have you booked today, and I wasn't going <laughs> to be able to get you on. So I'm glad this worked out. Well, yes, luck, lucky for you. <laughs> no, no, no calls yet, right? Well, I keep, on, I keep on watching, expecting you to be on one of these days. So I'm going to keep sending evil tweets to Stephen saying that you, he needs to bring you back on. I support your evil tweets. <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, I think Stephen's doing pretty good. I feel like the election cycle has been like the sweet spot for his, uh, his stuff. So it's been, yeah, he could use you, though. You, you, you'd improve the show. Uh, well, thank you. I think you're right, though. I think he really hit his stride. I think he, you know, it's probably hard for him to uh, sort of discern exactly which way the show is going, but I think the election really gave him a big boost, and his his little performance on the um, uh, floor of the, was it the Republican National Convention, where he sort of where, went up to the trying podium? Trying to get on the stage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that was fantastic. <laughs> that was, I think, I think you're right. I think it's got to be difficult for him to find his voice, because obviously he had to kind of change character. And uh, I, but I feel like you're right. I think this has been uh, this has been a really good season for him, and he's he's I, I, he's different from the other late night people because he I think does more su- substantive conversations. Well, that's right. Uh, he's a little bit more cerebral, and it's interesting because he's coming into late night. I mean, if this were forty or fifty years ago, right? I mean, it would be people like Jack Parr and Steve Allen. This is I mean before I was born, Johnny Carson. You know, a little more cerebral yeah. and uh, Dick Cavett, people like that. But now with Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel um, and James Corden, I think that the environment is more kind of almost like silly, lighthearted, which is not bad. I mean, kind of funny no, videos no. and things like that. He's a little bit more brainy. And I think, uh, you know, as a result, he's, you know, he's, he's kind of sui generis. He's, he's sort of trying to find his way as well. So, but I mean, I think he's great. He's doing a great job. And I, I watch him all the time. Yeah, I saw an interesting stat about the difference of the amount of like just like TV stars, movie stars that he had on compared to the rest of right. late night people. Yeah. And it was substantially lower, which speaks to what you're saying. Well, do you mean in his, in his current show or his old show? No, like this current show, like yeah. at first. Especially. Well, that's, that's the irony because the old show was, it was not like that at all. It was, you know, I'm certainly not a movie star. Uh, but that, that's the sort of move, I think, from kind of quirky people and authors to more celebrities. So... Yeah, but I think he's doing a great job. I'm, I'm a big fan still. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan, of course. I, I do know when he left uh, Comedy Central, there were a lot of authors who were quite crestfallen because they knew uh, That's there's it. not a venue. I know. Yep. Him and Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you been on Oprah before? Oh, no, no. I, would, <laughs> I have friends that have been on Oprah, Oprah uh, Richard Rohr, a friend of mine, of Joan Chittister, yeah. Um, yeah, and it, you know, obviously does it does a great deal for the book. Uh, when I was oh, on yeah. Colbert those few times, every time I was on, my books would zoom up uh, in the Amazon rankings. I bet. Yeah, I am. I'm actually going back out to New Mexico to see uh, Richard Rohr in um, I think next week or the week after. He's but great. I remember talking to him after his, I guess, Super Soul Sunday or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
He was, he was talking about how, uh, like, you just don't know if you're going to get back on. So, uh, yeah, let's hope you get on sometime. I think you'll be great on that. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are glad you're here talking on this podcast right now. And uh, the new book. Like, what goes into a book getting, like, a special 10th anniversary re-release kind of big hubbub? Like, what makes that happen? Well, that's, that's the publisher uh, who suggested that. And, you know, I, uh, I published several books with Loyola Press. They're a Jesuit ministry, and so it's near and dear to my heart. And they are just great people, and they do a great job. Uh, they also had a great success with that book, Dear Pope Francis, Children's Letters to the Pope, you know, which was mm-hmm. just terrific. So anyway, they um, uh, approached me and said, what do you think? And I said, I'd be delighted. Uh, and funny enough, they said, well, we'd like you to write a little bit more, a little extra chapter. And I said, that's fine. Um, you know, thinking I'd write two pages. <laughs> and I said, how much do you want? And they said, 5,000 words. That's, that's a significant, that's like a whole chapter. Um, yeah, that's a chapter right there. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to put out a new edition, they were right. You know, you don't want to just, mm-hmm. you know, slap on two pages. So it's a substantial um, edition. It's an epilogue where I talk about the questions that people ask me most often about the book and sort of update people on, you know, my own life and my own sort of thoughts on spirituality. And then yeah. a, a forward by John Allen, the um, Vatican correspondent. So it is significantly different, and they have a new cover, yeah. and it's, it's, it's a nice new package. Well, I mean, the forward was very nice. He spoke very highly of you, of course. And, but you have to wonder, like, how much more can you write? Because it's not like these people have changed in the last 10 years. I mean, they, <laughs> there's not much different about them. Well, but, the only thing that's different, I mean, the, the body of the book is more or less the same. I updated it a little bit. So, for example, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, as of uh, Sunday, um, will be St. Teresa of Calcutta. Uh, Blessed John the 23rd is now St. John the 23rd. So there were a couple little, little minor things that I had to update. But the, the epilogue talks about uh, the three questions that I get asked most frequently in talks, which is, one, why didn't you include my favorite saint? <laughs> uh, two, are you going to write a sequel? Really, I mean, I can rattle these off because people ask them all the time. Uh, and three, why did you include people who weren't officially saints? So I thought, you know, I, I'm going to answer those now in this new epilogue. And also I, uh, I talk about my own life and then some re- further reflections on sanctity and what I've learned in the last 10 years. So it's, it's kind of an updating yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know I come from uh, you know a Protestant background. I'm an evangelical pastor, mm-hmm. and so initially, like reading about a bunch of saints uh, to my audience and say my parishioners, I know it's going to be kind of a weird thing um, because that's not typically something we're comfortable with. But the book, in some ways, reminded me of a book that Philip Yancey put out years ago called uh, Soul Survivors. I know that book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where he kind of like went to different places and different things that helped like sustain his faith. And as I was hearing you tell these stories, I was going, as a Protestant, this is kind of that same thing that, it, well, I mean, it's obviously different, but it, it had that same feel to me. These well, are thanks. people who help sustain your faith, yeah. Yeah, thanks. And also, you know, I like to tell my Protestant friends, and a lot of Protestant um, churches have used the book uh, to great effect, because it's not, a, it's not a Catholic book per se, um, yeah. that, you know, these are stories of basically great Christians, that that's what, the, yeah. that's what the book is about. And I always like to make my Protestant friends smile when they say, well, we don't believe in the saints. And I say, oh, yeah. I said, what about St. Peter <laughs> or, <laughs> or St. Mark or St. Matthew or St. John? Or, uh, you know, yeah. they say, oh, right, you know, we, we do. Um, it's seen as kind of a, 
the province of Catholics, but you know, probably half the people in that book, you know, are before the Reformation, and so yep, uh, you know, yep. they're they're kind of, and you know, and I think there are, uh, you you can ask Catholics uh, about Protestant saints, so you you know, even sort of contemporary saints, you would say someone like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King, uh, you know, people yep. like that. Of course, you know, these people are are saints clearly. So I think the the invitation is for a Protestant audience to read these stories and say, yeah, you know, these people were Christian. Uh, in the words of the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, uh, I love this. Um, the saint shows us what it's what it means to be Christian in this particular way. Yeah. You know, like like yeah. Luke uh, Northworthy and Jim Martin are are trying to be holy in different ways. You know, we have different lives, and that doesn't mean one is better or worse way. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And so these people show you how God is kind of at work in all these different lives, which is really, it's, it's very inspiring, I find, reading the saints' lives. Yeah, and it, it had that same effect on me. It's very inspiring to me. Uh, a lot of these are names that I've, I've heard of. I've had some familiarity with some I didn't really know much about. Sure. And it served well, as a same, great same with a lot of ca- same with a lot of Catholics. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. Well. yeah, you know, like Aloysius Gonzaga and Pedro Rupe, they sort of say, oh, I think I've heard of them. But yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you're, I wanted to affirm that it's not just oh, good. Protestants that might not know these people. Good. Well, I feel better now. Thank you. <laughs> but you, you use the language of their like older brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and their, their models of holiness, which is, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And for us Protestants, we have our saints. We don't call them that. We just call them, hey, that's Max Lucado. Right. But we, don't, we don't say Max is a saint, but uh, they kind of have that same function. But it, my, my question that like bubbled up as I'm reading this uh, the other day is, Okay, well, who like who are the next round? Is this like how the NFL Hall of Fame works? Like every year they put people <laughs> up, they have to go before like a veterans committee. Like what is, what's a process? Actually, more so what I really care about, who are the next ones to get in? Like do I need to like start a ballot to get Roar to go in? <laughs> I'd be right up there. You know, it's Good. funny you should ask that. It, it actually is like the, the NFL. Um, and that's a great, actually, I never thought about that. That's a great analogy. The Baseball Hall of Fame might be a better analogy. Yeah. And, and that, that's funny. As I'm sitting here, I'm thinking that's the perfect analogy because uh, just because the church says, you know, God, I always say to people, God creates the saints. The church just recognizes them, right? Yeah. So it's like um, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Just because someone isn't in the Baseball Hall of Fame does not mean they were not a great baseball player, right? So there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of baseball players you can say, oh my gosh, that guy was fantastic, and you know, I, I, I look at his batting stance, and I watch games, and I read about him, but sadly he's not in the Hall of Fame. That doesn't mean he's a, not a great baseball player. The, the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, basically what it does is it kind of puts the official stamp of approval, and it sort of raises them up for everyone to see. And that's yeah. what the church does with the saints. You know, I mean, there are people you know, who are out there who, you know, we may never know about mothers and fathers and, uh, you know, lawyers and doctors and teachers, because, you know, they're not as much in the public eye. They're saints, right? I mean, they live holy lives. But what Mm -hmm. the church does is um, recognize people who have kind of wide appeal and that people are really devoted to, like Mother Teresa, and they, Mm -hmm. and they raise them up. They what's called canonize them. They, They say they're officially a saint. Not to say they're better or worse than anybody else or that there aren't any other saints in other you know, parts of the world or different w- ways of life, but just that here's, here's an example that we can point to who we're pretty sure is in heaven, we're sure is in heaven, um, and, that, you know, and that, that serves as a model. So like Mother Teresa really is a model for people who work with the poor and people who want to live simply, and 
So yeah, so so I think the the Hall of Fame thing or the you know the NFL thing is a good analogy. Yeah, I like that you said that we're sure they're in heaven because if Mother Teresa isn't <laughs> yeah. in heaven, then I'm pretty screwed. I've got no shot. I um, know, I know. You know, it's funny. I I usually say the same words, and you know, people. I'll refer to someone like um, uh, you know, before they were canonized. Well, like Mother Teresa, you know, she's a saint, and they'll say, "Well, Father, you know, she's she's not been canonized yet." And I said the exact same thing, Luke. If Mother Teresa is not in heaven, I'm in deep trouble. You know. Yes. So yeah, yeah. There and sure. and there 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 are lots of saints that we don't know about. Yeah, of course. And so I like in the book how you described the lives of these people, and they weren't to to say. I mean, they weren't always saintly people. They they were very. Um, like normal, you could see the humanity in the stories of these people, and you you hear of um, uh, wasn't Merton uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Merton, li- mm-hmm. yeah, lived quite the um, um, reckless life at one point. Multiple others uh, had these these stories in which you go, well, that that sounds like just normal people for the first part of their life. Obviously, there's growth and there's formation, but they're not like whitewash the story of these people that I think hum- humanizes them. Well, thanks. And, you know, I, I look at someone once again to, you know, sort of draw upon our, our common background, look at someone like St. Peter. I mean, you know, the yeah. first thing, you know, when Jesus calls, and this was the gospel reading I, I, in our church at least a couple of days ago, uh, I think it's uh, Luke 5 where, uh, you know, Jesus appears and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So there's, there's yeah. Peter saying he sent, which he is, you know, because he's a human being, he's imperfect. And he continues to misunderstand things, and then he, you know, denies knowing Jesus at the crucifixion, and then Jesus forgives him again afterwards. And so, yeah, he's very human, even after his time with Jesus. And I think the saints would say that certainly there are kind of pre-conversion and post-conversion stories, you know, where there, you know, there's a dramatic change. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's dramatic. But even afterwards, they sin. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they don't sin gravely, I would say. Yeah. But, but, you know, they're imperfect. They lose their temper, and they, they get frustrated, and they might, you know, say a cross word to somebody. Or... So, yeah, yeah they're, they're really... Sanctity does not mean perfection. You know, there's yeah. only one perfect person. And you look at the apostles. I always say to people, if the apostles had a difficult time, and that, you know, they had Jesus... I always think about this. They had Jesus in front of them <laughs> and they were still kind of messed up so uh, you know it kind of it's it, it sort of puts our failings in perspective yeah i liked your description of uh ignatius of Loy- loyola who is mm-hmm. uh i guess the founder of your order yeah did i get that right yeah yep. uh which, which to like a protestant that's kind of like like your denomination is that a fair comparison well gee i don't uh, more like in for the protestant would be like your, mm, there's not really a. I'm not. I'm not coming up with an analogy. It's yeah, not a denomination it's, like Methodism or Presbyterianism. Yeah. It's more like your church, I would say. If you're, if okay. you're sort of part of a, a large church, yeah. I mean, it's basically yeah, so the religious order. For those who don't know, it's a group of uh, men or women who live together in community. We take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and we work together. So it's a kind of uh, association almost. But yes, yeah, so Ignatius th- founded the Jesuits, right? And so that's, that's your order. And you described Correct. him as a uh, taciturn uncle who secretly paid for your school, which is a great description. Like, he doesn't come across like this loving, I'm going to just get a big hug from you, and you're going to be this jovial, like, grandpa, but it's, 
he's a, that's not who he is, but he's yeah. still a saint. That's, that's right. That's what I found compelling. Well, yeah, and, and Ignatius Loyola, who was a, a soldier in um, uh, 15th century Spain and was kind of a hothead uh, and has his leg shattered in a, in a, a battle in 1521, mm-hmm. and then he reads the lives of the saints and the life of Jesus you know, and reads the Bible and says he wants to change his life, and that sort of leads to his conversion. Uh, the joke is, which is true, is that he's the only saint with a, get this, a notarized police record for, quote, brawling with an intent to cause serious harm, end quote. <laughs> that, <laughs> so, you know, these are, these are people that are, these are real people. And, and one of the things I try to do in my life with the saints is just, just tell their real stories. Yeah. And, you know, not really, not whitewash them. And you, you tell a story that he uh, went through, like, very crude operations to make yeah. his leg look straighter yeah. so he would look better in his pants. Yep. Which, you know, you got to look good. I respect his uh, commitment to, uh, to keeping it uh, on point. But, uh, like, yeah, but again, I this... Know, I don't know if you would do it without anesthesia, though. That was, that was the uh, difficult part for him. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I would go there. Now, I think the... I think the most surprising part of the book, which in some ways this story about Mother Teresa and her doubt um, has been yeah. told a lot, but for those who don't know, I think that would be the most uh, surprising, compelling part because I, I heard you say in one interview that she in some ways is like the saint for doubters, who like not many people would think this woman no. who's committed her life to this amazing stuff which would wrestle and live with doubt, but that's her story. Yeah, can I tell her story real briefly? Oh, go for it, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically everyone knows the general outlines of Mother Teresa's life, working with the poor, but uh, what they don't know is that shortly, well, she has these, these series of intense experiences in prayer where she feels that Jesus is very clearly calling her to uh, leave this one religious order, um, the Sisters of Loretto, start her own and work with the poor. So most people know that. She started the Missionaries of Charity. She worked with the poorest of the poor. She's kind of a model Christian. What we found out after her death was that a few years after she had these intense experiences in prayer, her prayer life just dried up. And she felt very, well, she felt nothing interiorly. I mean, you know, most of us, when we pray, you know, it goes up and down, and we have dry periods and rich periods. She never had another rich period, uh, except for like a month, I think, for the rest of her life. And she had these terrible doubts and this this feeling of darkness and, and abandonment uh, you know, like sort of God abandoning her and this sort of feeling of God's absence, you know, this dark night, as spiritual writers call it. Um. And she really struggled with that. And eventually, with the help of um, some spiritual counseling from a Jesuit, I'm happy to say, <laughs> she, yeah, exactly, she was able to see this as, I mean, imagine, imagine doing all this work, you know, in Calcutta with the poorest of the poor, trying to, you know, serve, serve the Lord, and not feeling too much in prayer. Eventually she realized that she was being called to identify with Jesus in his abandonment on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the poor who feel abandoned. And so that's how she made meaning of it. But for the rest of her life, she basically had to go on the basis of those earlier experiences in prayer. And she even said, I will be a saint of the darkness, which is really powerful. But as you were saying, Luke, who would have thought that in her lifetime? I mean, who would have thought, you know, oh, Mother Teresa's having a hard time in prayer? Yeah, no, I, I never would imagine that. If anyone has a deep, rich connection to God, you would think a woman who has made this sort of commitment to, you know, Matthew 25 of... Yeah. You know, like, you tell the story about where someone sees her doing uh, some yeah. gruesome kind of thing, and the guy says, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars, and she goes... 
I wouldn't either, but I would do it for Jesus. Yeah, isn't that, and I, he, like, I love that story. That's a great story. But, but she doesn't feel like she has this, this vibrant connection is the, the, the surprising thing. So how, how do you use that in, in helping someone who's, who's living with doubt, who's going through their own dark night of the soul? How does she connect to them? What is, what is the way that she is, like, what does it look like to be the patron saint for doubters? Well, that's a great question. I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, you're not alone. Yeah. You know, first of all, if you are feeling dry in your interior life and in your, you are not alone. This is natural. Even the saints go through it, you know, because people do doubt that. They say, oh, everybody else, I'm sure you know this, Luke, you know, as a pastor, you, people say always, oh, my prayer life is bad, but I'm sure yours is so wonderful. You know, as a yeah. pastor, you, all you have to do is close your eyes and <laughs> everything is like, you know, you like the visions of whatever. And you say you're not alone. That's the first thing. The second thing is, um, and I think this is more subtle, a lot of times we say, well, I am no Mother Teresa, or I am no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Or, yeah. or I am no whoever. I am no Billy Graham. I can't do that. I, I don't have the connection with God that they do. And so we kind of let ourselves off the hook. We say, well, leave it to Billy Graham to sort of be the great evangelist and to Dietrich Bonhoeffer to stand up for, you know, truth in a, you know, difficult society. I can't do that. Well, what Mother Teresa shows us is that the saints actually had it harder. It's not that they had it easier and it was easier for them. And so it doesn't let us off the hook. You know, it reminds us that, you know, we are all called to holiness. We're all called to, you know, be radical Christians in a sense. So I think, and, and then the other thing is that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's human to have doubt and to struggle and to wonder and to question. It's human. And, you know, the, the great irony is that uh, the guy who was very close to her, Father Brian, who was a missionary of charity, said that, you know, the kinds of things she was dealing with is sort of a sense of aloneness and, and feeling isolated are very like 21st century problems. And so she's a very contemporary saint for us. Yeah. And I have to yeah. say this, I, I go further. I would say she's the greatest saint of modern times, precisely because she did all this stuff that a lot of people do, work with the poor and lead Christian lives, but she did it on an empty tank. Yeah. That, that's the unbelievable thing to me, is that she continued to do this even yeah. when her tank was dry. And for those um, who are called to ministry... Uh, and you feel like you're wrestling with doubt and you're wrestling with a sense of like unknowing and not having connection, to see an example uh, who fought through that, who didn't give up her calling despite um, a prolonged dark night of the soul. I, I don't even know if you can call it a dark night of the soul when it lasts for that long. You're right. Uh, but it's just like that, that is her normal experience, and that's, yeah. that's what's encouraging to me. And I think yeah. that's why I would, uh, I would second your vote. I don't know if I get one as a Protestant together. You do. She's, you get one. Okay. Well, I, I think that's what's most compelling is that she's very human, and it's not this facade of, hey, everything's always great, but it's... And I, I wonder if part of that experience, and I'm no psychologist, but is part of the effect of dealing with the darkest part of the world and having to live in that. Like, that has to affect and shape uh, your whole worldview. You know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, although I know people that work with the poor, and, and I mean, I worked in East Africa for a while. I, you know, this is, this, look, this is, this is now I'm going to, <laughs> now I'm going to try to explain God's <laughs> mysterious ways. Um, I wonder if this was not 
I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very sort of tentative about sort of trying to explain God. I'm very excited was, where this, you're going, right? Well, if this was done to her, or if this, this was an experience that she was invited into, precisely for our benefit, in the sense right. that uh, she is now uh, a saint of the darkness, she is now a saint of doubters, and so she went through something and wrote about it, you know, and experienced it in order to help us, just like Jesus on the cross, basically. I mean, he, yeah. he kind of goes through these things in order to help us understand suffering. And she, in a way, helps us understand this, this mystery, this kind of mystery of suffering. And in fact, she is kind of united with Jesus, who feels abandoned for those however long, you know, those moments on the cross. It is, it is pretty extraordinary. And as you say, everyone looked at her and probably thought, oh, you know, look at her. She's got it made in the spiritual life. It must be easy for her. Mm-hmm. And, and it also shows us, Luke, that we never know what's going on inside someone's, you know, soul. You yeah. know, we, ne- we, we really, we have a very, it's very easy to look at someone and say, oh, I, I'm sure I know what's going on with him and God, and we really have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, uh, I mean, she's such a great example. I, I love her story. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses that, mm-hmm. that spur you on. Mm-hmm. She's definitely one that probably has... Uh, has that place for my life more than a lot because of her ability to live with that. And that's so well, encouraging. I'm really glad to hear that. I also want to say, you know, to your listeners who might not have experience with uh, uh, this, this part of the Christian life, I worked with her um, sisters, the missionaries of charity, in the familiar blue and white habits in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, who cared for the poor and the sick and the dying in their hospice. And let me tell you, not only were they the most faithful women, they were also the most joyful and not fake joy. I mean, they really, they laughed all the time. They had a good time. They just, they were filled with Christian joy. And that was, that was part of her, one of her lines was, don't let anyone leave you without uh, giving them a smile. Huh. So that's, there's, it's also this kind of Christian joy. And, and to be able to do that, and I wanted to say uh, something to comment on something you said earlier. She was very faithful. So she had these deep experiences early in her life, and she was faithful to that. And as you were talking, I was thinking, let's think of like the apostles. So, of course, you know, they, they experienced the resurrection, they were at Pentecost. Who knows if they ever had any sort of deep experience like that for the rest of their lives? I mean, you know, we, we yeah. know something about the rest of their lives, and a lot of them are martyred. But, I mean, who knows? Maybe they were young, maybe they were like in their 20s, and then maybe they lived for 30 more years, and maybe they don't have anything like that. So it's that kind of faithfulness that, that I think we're all called to, to our original yeah. call as Christians. Yeah, and so the faithfulness is whether you're um, a Nobel Prize winner like Mother Teresa, or you're like the woman that she's, um, I don't know, how, what is the language? She took her name, her, her new name came from, what, what is the language? Uh, that, oh, well, like she took her religious name from her, okay, her Teresa of Lisieux, right, mm-hmm. or yeah, Teresa of Avila, right, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, the, the little flower, since I'm not going to try to pronounce the other name, uh, she's this young woman who passes away early in life. Mm-hmm. People don't really know much about her, but she's elevated to, like, the highest, well, like, one of the highest honors being a doctor. Yeah. Is, that, doctor is that the Doctor of the honor? church. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's like sort of eminent teacher of the faith, yeah. Yeah, and and she never, and obviously her language, her her, uh, her work is the little way, which is, it's it's not big and fancy, and her faithfulness mm-hmm. is not spotlighted. It's it's in some ways she's like the uh, the patron saint for all those 
who are not in the spotlight, who are totally. behind the scenes. And I, yeah. I, I love how her story is included, too. I'm so glad you liked her. Therese Lisieux, yeah, well-known uh, to Catholics, called the little flower because she said, I'm, I could never be a big rose or a lily. I'll just be a little daisy. Um, yeah. yeah, her little way is doing uh, little things with great love for God. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the reasons it's so powerful for people is that, you know, who hasn't felt little? You know, I mean, you know, you're washing dishes or you're, you know, or you're changing diapers. I mean, these are really, these are tasks that can feel unimportant, but, you know, diaper changing, that's really important. That's a really important thing to do, you know, and, and she's saying that's really holy. And if you do it for God's glory and with a sense of love, it's just as important as, you know, uh, being a pastor or, you know, or, or, or preaching a hundred homilies, you know, this is, this is holy work. So that, that little way is really beautiful. And as you said, you know, people didn't really know about her. Um, she was in a, a convent in France, and but she wrote her diary, and it came out with this little way, and it really caught on. And I think, as you say, it's because everyone kind of can feel connected to that. Yeah, and she had this basic thing about you know loving the most unlovable people mm-hmm. who were around her. Yeah. And you think, well, how many unlovable nuns are there? I don't know. I didn't go to <laughs> Catholic school, so I don't. I have this assumption they're all nice, but I guess I'm wrong. Well, but, you don't know, listen. They're humans. <laughs> We're all human. I mean, it's like saying, "Gee, have you ever met a have you ever met a, a, a Protestant pastor who's not nice?" No, there's none of us. We're all we're, we're all just all, rosebuds. Always, always, twenty four seven, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the, exactly that's true. A th- yeah, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we we hope that Catholic sisters and priests and brothers and Protestant pastors and and ministers yeah. are trying to be, you know, Christian. <laughs> but you know, we fail. Um, and in the book, she talks about. This one nun who bothered her um, and who used to, this is terrible, who used to, like, I think, intentionally splash water on her when they were washing <laughs> dishes. And she, so was, she was, she was, I know, and she was, well, you know, human beings, she was um, purposely more nice to this person. And so, you know, it's a very Christian response. It's, it's hard, too. It's yeah. hard. It's a kind of mini. It, yeah, I don't know if I've always done that, for sure. You, no, you, no, have I you been, you, but hopefully you haven't splashed water on someone intentionally, right? Well, I never would. But that's also because I don't do the dishes enough. So that's part of, <laughs> that's that's right, part you, of the you, problem. You don't do the dishes at all. That's, uh, okay, I won't go there. No, I do the dishes. <laughs> and I change diapers. I just change Very good. diapers. Yeah, Very so good. I'm, just so that my wife still likes me. Um, but no, I, I like that you see the, the different end of the spectrum of someone who is yeah. you know, so front and center and then someone who is in the shadows. And both yeah. of these people can be honored because they have a, a special and honored place in the church. And, uh, yeah, that's great. And then, uh, and that's the other thing about the, the complexity of the people. There's, uh, one line you said about Merton, uh, Thomas Merton, who, um, everyone should know who Thomas Merton is, but you say this about him. You say, seeing that someone so human could be holy gives me great hope, especially with Merton. One sees both the sins and the sanctity. Yeah. And do you think that like as a, like a pastor, like if you have a, a pastor or a priest who's listening to this, how would you encourage them to be able to do that exact same thing, where they show their their sanctity, their holiness, their special calling, uh, but also to let their humanity be seen? Oh, you mean in their own lives? You yeah, like how, I, would, I, how could they do the same thing? Well, I think just by being yourself, frankly. I mean, one of the great lines, and I'll, I'll quote it, and it's in the front of my book, it leads off the book, Thomas Merton says, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Yeah. So what does, what, does, what does Luke, what does Pastor Luke have to do to be a saint? Be himself. 
That doesn't mean you don't have to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, uh, you know, Billy Graham or Max Lucado, because, as I always like to joke, you know, God has already created those people. (laughs) They've already done their thing. But, you know, God creates you to be you and not your idea of, you know, what a pastor should be, but God's idea of what a pastor should be as Luke. And so that's very powerful. That can be very freeing for people. Uh, And Thomas Merton was himself. And I think, you know, because he was so contemporary, we have people who, you know, I I know people who knew him. And they say, yeah, he was flawed and and sometimes he was full of himself. But, you know, he he was really, he was, when you look back, you can say clearly this was a holy person. And that's what I meant by that comment. That, you know, you know, it's like you have a friend. I'm sure someone in your parish, for example, or in your congregation, you know, you say this is a very holy person, you know, maybe an older person or someone who's caring for yeah. a sick child, but they're not perfect. Yeah. yeah, they might curse or take the Lord's name in vain or, you know, miss church or, you know, gossip. They're still holy. And I think that's the way God looks at us. God sees the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, I think there's a weird thing that sometimes people want their religious leader, and I don't know if this is the same in your church as it is in, in, in my experience in the Protestant church, but we like having the celebrity pastor that we think is this fully perfect person. And it, in some ways it, it comforts us, it makes us feel like we like to have that person. Like I literally had a, a parishioner once say, you know, I like having my priest on an elevated platform as a teacher in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know anything else about him. He's just that, that person on the stage. Mm. And I wonder why people are drawn to that, because I, I don't see that at all. Like, it doesn't connect to me at all if I don't see the humanity. Like, as, uh, as Jacob walked with a limp after he encountered God, like, I want to see a yeah. limp to see yeah. someone that's honest. Well, look, I, you know, I would say, obviously, Jesus is sinless, but I always remind people, he also came back after the resurrection with the wounds, you know? I mean, yeah. he suffered, basically, so he's, he's, he suffered. He's human. Um, yeah, I, I think two reasons. I think there's a good reason and a bad reason for that. I think the good reason is, you know, people do want examples. They want people that they can look up to and pat on themselves after. You know, I want, you know, when Mother Teresa gets a million dollars for the Nobel Prize, I don't want her to say, oh, the heck with this. I'm going to go out and buy a condo now in Florida, you know? Yeah. I want her to continue to be, you know, live simply and help the poor. That's the good reason. The bad reason is that I think it kind of lets people off the hook. They say, oh, look, you know, Pastor Luke is, he's like Jesus, you know, and oh, I couldn't possibly be like that. I, I'm, not, I'm not called to sort of, you know, live the gospel, so I'm going to leave that to him. And again, that lets us off the hook in a very subtle way. We put literally saints in the Catholic Church, we put the saints on pedestals, literally, and oh, yeah. they're far away from us, and we assume that they're the only ones that can live holy lives, and we let ourselves off the hook. And, you know, Jesus is calling, Jesus is calling everybody, and I always remind people, <laughs> the apostles are all lay people, you know? Yeah. He's, he, he's call, he's not, he doesn't go into the priestly caste and call people. He calls fishermen and tax collectors, and so that's, that's the call. Um, and, yeah, I think it basically lets us off the hook, so it can be a little easy. Do you, did you find that as one of the motivators to make you want to include the humanity of all these saints while you're telling their story? Because you know that's a propensity that people have? Definitely. And I, I say that, yeah, I say that in the book. And, and also, I wanted to scrape off some of the layers of piety and legend that have kind of grown up around these saints and to say, you know, as you were pointing out, these are real people. And if these are real people that can be saints and be holy, and you're a real person reading the book, then guess what? 
You know, as Mother yeah. Teresa says, sanctity is everybody's call, not just, you know, not just a few. Yeah, so the, the Pope recently got a group of young evangelical pastors to fly mm-hmm. over uh, to meet him. And I'm still a little bitter that I wasn't on that list, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably forgive him, you know, since he is the Pope. But uh, a guy on the podcast was one of those people, and wow. he, he, he talked uh, about what the Pope said was the biggest issue facing the church, or one of the biggest problems, and he said it was professionalization. Mm. Like, people thinking that it's just the professionals who are called to do yeah. God's work, not everyone. And, no, that's very perceptive. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's the Pope for a reason. I mean, he's, he's right on. Yeah, and, and it does. It's, um, and then it also, I think, makes our job harder because people look at us as if we're sort of superhuman. Uh, and I, I sometimes feel that, you know, when I'm talking, people are sort of nodding and listening and like, oh, yeah, you know, you're so holy. <laughs> or they say, yeah. you know, this is more common, I think, in Catholic circles because we're not married. They say, oh, well, your life must be so easy. You know, <laughs> you, you don't have any problems. And I just sort of roll my eyes. I had, well, you'll appreciate this. So as your listeners might know, I work at a magazine uh, mm-hmm. during the week. And also I celebrate Mass on Sundays. And this woman on the way out of Mass one day said, that was a great homily. And she said, but of course, you have a lot of time to prepare it. And I, <laughs> I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you don't, you only work on Sundays, right? Oh. <laughs> I said, I was so tempted to say, listen, lady, but I got myself. <laughs> I said, I have a full-time job, and I work on Sundays. And she said, oh, that's so interesting, and sort of went away sort of wondering about that. It, <laughs> it's nice to know that you priests get the same, you only work one day a week joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, and you I spend the that. other six days just sort of thinking about a homily. Yeah, you know? I got that, I got that uh, last week. One of, yeah. yeah. Someone said that to me. But you have a weird background that you were in the business world for like six years or so. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you feel like that enables you to speak into um, the normal existence of a lot of business women and businessmen who are in your parish yes. or that you would be preaching to? Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, and, and I also think it's good to have had what we call in the Jesuits a real life, right? I mean, I had to yeah. earn a living and I went to, you know, I had a job and, you know, so when come, someone comes to me, I always, I always use this example. Someone comes and says, my boss is a jerk. I don't say, oh, yes, well, you must pray for her, my son. <laughs> You know, yeah. I say, I know what that's like. Let's talk yeah. about that, and let's talk about where God might be. So, yeah, it, it gives me a sense of what, the way most people live, thank God. Yeah. Do you ever feel like there's a, uh, there's a tension because you felt called out of that to do, like, a special ministry? Do you ever feel like um, people might think, well, if I'm called to ministry, and if I'm going to be like, uh, you know, Father Jim, then I have to leave my job to do ministry, uh, do you ever feel like people misunderstand like they're called to do God's work in their profession? Yes, yes. And I, I think I misunderstood it for a while because, you know, business was not my vocation, and so I felt this kind of push away from it. And initially I thought, oh, you know, I want to leave that behind. You know, but in, you know, in the next couple of years, as I started to see my friends who lived uh, in the business world and worked in the business world and really flourished, I realized that's a vocation for people. So, you know, Mother Teresa's great line, which it's, it's great we're talking about her today, so much, um, is when people would come to her and say they wanted to work in Calcutta, uh, she would say, find your own Calcutta, right? So where you're living, in your home or in your office, or that's where God has put you, which I think is really beautiful, find your own Calcutta. Yep, that's a a great line. And uh, yeah, that's great. Um, Well, hey, I'm excited. The book, I guess, came out uh, today on Friday, and uh, I encourage people to get a copy of this. I know you've got to run. You've got a mass. 
And so I feel like I'd get in big trouble if I made you late to Mass. So I'm going to have to let you go now. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. God bless you. All right. Appreciate you, brother. Yep. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>